Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December the 13th, 2018. It's a Thursday, that means we missed a Friday the 13th by one day, so perhaps this will be a 13th with good luck instead of bad luck, even though I really don't kind of believe in that stuff. Anyway, it is going to be a good show, that I know, because it comes from you guys. It's a listener call show. That's where you either pick up the phone and dial 866-65-THINK. We call that the THINK line. Again, 866-65-THINK. Or you get on over to the speak pipe. You just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on uh, Contact Us, and you can see how to use the speak pipe there. And you mash a button and leave us a message, and we'll try to get you on the air either way. I will tell you all but one call today comes from the speak pipe because the speak pipe was backed up because I got lazy and didn't check it. So uh, everything today is from the speak pipe. If you called in on the think line and don't hear yourself as the one lucky caller today, odds are good that you will hear yourself next week um, on Thursday the 20th. A little note there. Uh, next week we will have that show on the 20th. We'll have uh, probably an expert counsel show as planned on. Actually, that's what I was thinking there. That's where I was going with that. On the 21st. Next week, we will not have an expert counsel show. No, we will have the Christmas special for 2018, uh, which is a show that we originally did all the way back in 2008. So it'll be the 10th time uh, that show has aired. Actually, it'll be the 11th time, wouldn't it? Because the first year counts, right? So, yeah, so it'll be the 11th time that that show has aired over the years. And... Um, And uh, we have, you know, the little little add-on or take-off uh, for the year in question. And that means that that day will be the last show of 2018. We will then go into our shutdown, something I've done every year with this show since we started. And we will return on uh, Tuesday, January 1st, 2019, first day of the year. I uh, don't see taking that day off, given it comes on a Tuesday there. So uh, that's that's our shutdown that we do every year. And, uh, of course, we encourage you guys to spend as much downtime with your family as you can during that period as well. I know not all of you can, but just wanted to kind of point that out. If you want to get on the air this year, uh, this coming week is the time to get your calls in. And uh, I have not decided whether to run some rewinds during that period or not. Uh, a lot of you guys tell me when I say I'm going to run rewinds during a period like that to not bother Um, it really isn't a lot of work. I would probably run them to 26, 27, and 28 only. Um, I'd love your opinion on that. And uh, if you want them, great. If you don't want them, fine. But don't be like, hey, Jack, don't worry about it. Take your t it's, it's, Don't worry about that part. If no one's going to listen, then I'm not going to put them out. If people will listen, then it's not that much work to pop three of them up for you. Don't want anybody going full-on TSP withdrawals during this time. Anyway, so what do we got on deck today from your calls? Uh, here's what we got. We have, I have graduated from jerk to full-on asshole. It's a, it's a good call, though. Uh, making a decision on selling real property after a disaster. Uh, what is the future of Biltong for breakfast? I have some ideas, and I want to hear what you guys think about it. Uh, tips on saving cash in your home. Really good call from a, a listener that I wanted to play for you. Question on the proper use of the carry electric canner. I'll talk about that. Some general thoughts on CBD products. This call really is more 
a solicitation call for me from someone working with a company in the CBD world. Uh, it is informational enough that I can use it to talk about the subject that I've never really talked about. Uh, I've, I've come across as being, you know, anti-cannabis laws. I, I just, I, I think making a plant illegal is just stupid. But I've never really talked about the the medical use of, of of cannabis, whether it be through CBD products or through you know the the form of cannabis that people think of as an illegal illicit drug. Uh, I'll stick to CBD because that's what that's about today. But I'm just going to give you some thoughts on it, and I'll tell you right now, not an expert here, but I think there's incredible potential for a lot of things uh, with CBD. Um, a question on using auto posting with social media. I'll give you the good and the bad on that. And then once again, a Shakespeare-like question, to lease or buy a vehicle? That is the question. We will endeavor to answer it for you. So a lot of diversity on today's show. Before we get to it all, let's go ahead and take a look at this day in history. A little short segment for you today. We're going back to this day in history in 1621. Uh, first export of American furs. Under the care of Robert Cushman, The first American first to be exported from the continent leave England aboard the Fortune. One month before Cushman and the Fortune had arrived in Plymouth Colony in present-day Massachusetts with 35 settlers, the first new colonist since the settlement was founded in 1620. During Cushman's return to England, the Fortune was captured by the French. Its valuable cargo of furs was taken. Cushman was detained on the Ile de Lou before being returned to England. Within a few years of their first fur export, the Plymouth colonists, unable to make their living through cod fishing, as they had originally planned, began concentrating almost entirely on the fur trade. The colonists developed an economic system in which their chief crop, Indian corn, was traded with Native Americans to the north for highly valued beaver skins, which were in turn profitably sold in England to pay for Plymouth colonies' debts and buy necessary supplies. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff in this seemingly simple history segment to look at. Number one, I want you to think about the fact that the, the Native Americans were trading with these colonists that had not been there for very long for corn that they were the ones that originally cultivated and domesticated. And that what they were trading was fur. And uh, you might like, really? I don't, uh, you know. Well, think about actually this makes a lot of sense. So... The people that came over here to settle were, among other things, farmers. They knew how to farm. They had this new crop, and they learned some things about nutrients and stuff like that from the Native Americans using you know, fish waste and stuff like that. Um, but they were on very fertile soil, and they also kind of stuck around a pretty small area. They weren't real familiar with what was out in them their hills. For the Natives... Trapping fur was a way of life, and frankly, a hell of a lot easier than growing corn. So why not let these white guys grow the corn? That That's kind of part of what's going on here. Another thing is, you notice that this guy's captured by the French. They take all his stuff, and then they send his ass to England. Uh, this happened all the time. It was known as privateering. Basically, it was piracy under the flag of a recognized nation with their approval, so it was basically legalized piracy. I must say we have something like that today. I'll leave it to you to figure out what it is if you don't already know, but it involves maroads. Next up is how libertarian the original colonies, colonies really were. How, how anarcho, actually. Uh, and I know you think, well, Puritans and all this. Okay, look, 
these groups of people came with their own preconceived ideas of the rules that they were to have. But it really wasn't a government enforcing the rules. It was their own community enforcing the rules. They had to pay their own way, pay their own debts. Um, it was all done with money. And most of the thing, most of the settling was actually done by corporations. So all of that is built into kind of this early initial trade or trade relationship between the settlers and the Native Americans. Just some thoughts. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Let's start out. Apparently, I've, I've graduated from jerk to asshole, uh, and in a good way. Here we go. Jack, Aaron from New Hampshire here, and you are an asshole. I decided to graduate into adulthood this year and host Thanksgiving for 25 or so family members, and after listening to episode 2116, Cooking this Thanksgiving and just killing it, I absolutely crushed it. I did your brined and slow-roasted turkey, gravy, and sausage and chestnut stuffing, and had everybody else bring sides and desserts. It was a huge success. A couple people said they were going to start brining. My less-than-tactful younger cousin, who normally complains about the turkey being too dry, said this was the first turkey he's ever had that he liked. And an aunt said it was the best gravy she's ever had. Oh, yeah, and the apple pie moonshine kept the party cranking till late into the night. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and this year I'm certainly thankful for the Survival Podcast. Cheers. Well, I'm happy to hear it, and of course we are coming up on uh, Turkey Day 2.0, also known as Christmas dinner. Um, I have to say this will be a short response because you know, it's just a, a kind of a, hey, we I use your technique and this is how it worked out. Um, I, I have to just say if I could get people, when it comes to cooking certain hunks of meat, to do one thing to make their life better it would be brining. Turkeys, chickens, uh, briskets, uh, it, not always briskets. I've done brisket, you know, just a straight dry rub, and I've done it with brining, and, it, and there's, you know, different ways that works out. But pork shoulders, brine pork shoulder is fantastic. And a lot of times brining doesn't have to be a, a big, long, overnight process. Quick brining, you know, an hour with parted out chicken. And that could be chicken you're going to bread and fry, chicken you're going to grill. It doesn't really matter. Uh, brining is just fantastic. And in addition to just the concept of brining, overall the use of salt. Um, I have a sirloin uh, end cap that I'm going to be cooking for my wife and I tonight. came from Butcher Box. And uh, last night I took it out of its packaging and I salted it. And I didn't salt it in that super heavy salting way that I talk about doing a salted steak where you salt it for 15 minutes per quarter inch and then you wash it off and cook it right away. I gave it a light coating of salt and let it sit overnight in the refrigerator, draw extra moisture out of it. Um, and, and that alone has a, a, a marked uh, impression on the texture, the tenderness, the taste of the meat, etc. And so I would encourage you guys to explore what salt can do for you uh, in, the words of, in the world of brining, in the world of salted steaks, in the world of just using salt to pull some moisture out. Uh, and, and when you make that exchange with salt, uh, remember that as the salt pulls out moisture, it also is pulled in. And it takes along for the ride whatever's with it. So different seasonings and things like that can go along with it. Uh, my basic brine recipe, I will link to the Thanksgiving episode because it has it there for you uh, in today's show notes. But, guys, if, if you will brine those big hunks of meat before you cook them, uh, it will change the way you look at cooking big hunks of meat. I promise you. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on um, real property. 
from a relative. I guess it could be inherited. In this case, it's uh, the case is this that the the relative is, is elderly and going to a uh, elder care facility and will never return there. So then the family needs to do something with the property and. Um, we just had, you know, a massive set of natural disasters in, in California. And natural disasters happen all the time. And I'm sure this type of thing happens all the time. So here's the caller's question. Hi, Jack. This is Jay from NorCal. I was very hesitant to ask this question, but after listening to Nicole's last segment, I figured there was a lot of other people in this same predicament. So here's the question. After a natural disaster... When is the best time to sell a property? Here's some details. Uh, family home in Paradise, California that survived the fire. Um, however, my grandmother um, will be spending the rest of her days uh, in a memory care uh, unit and so will not be returning back to the house. Um, and the family is just curious. Um, you know, is now a good time uh, to... Um, sell the house? Should we wait until um, the city's back up on its feet? Um, mostly it's just we don't want to be taken advantage by uh, predatory uh, real estate agents. Thanks, Jack. So you, you said you did, almost didn't ask this question. I'm not sure why. I'm, I'm really glad that you did. Maybe you just thought maybe it didn't apply to a lot of people. But this is actually a really great question because it would apply to a lot of different situations, not just the unique one that you have. In any instance where uh, a piece of property has been temporarily devalued and the decision has been made that, well, we're not going back there. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Uh, bad memories, and I just don't want to go through it again. It's going to take too long for this place to, to recover. Um, we, we see an opportunity to do something else now, whatever it is. Um, and, and before I go on, I just want to say you, you use the term predatory real estate agents. Um, I beat the hell out of real estate agents all the time, and the reality is because most of them are stupid and don't know how to do their jobs. And, and I say that ha after having to do the job of multiple real estate agents that I retained because I just kind of needed to have one uh, for various reasons. But uh, they are terrible generally at negotiating. Uh, they are generally terrible at just about everything. Uh, you can tell them, I don't want X, and they will show you, property after property that has X. You will tell them, I absolutely have to have Y, and they will show you properties that don't have it and not even know whether they have it or not. Where it's like, why didn't you pick up the phone, call the listing agent, and ask them if they had Y? And they don't know why. So I am not defending real estate agents as a group of people here, though there are some good ones out there, and I've had one really good one. And the fact that I had one really good one showed me just how bad most of them are, Okay. Uh, but real estate agents operate from a standpoint of they make money by selling property, whether they're representing you as a buyer or representing the seller as a seller or when they're fortunate enough to receive full commission by representing both parties. That's how they make their money. In general, they're not predatory because they want that property to sell for as much money as it can because that's how they make They're living. If they sell a property for $100,000, uh, they make about exactly half of what they would make if they sold it for $200,000. So it doesn't do them any good to undervalue your property and sell it other than can they sell a bunch quick? Then maybe, right? But it, in general, that's just not the issue. And there's a lot of safeguards in place when it comes to real property. 
uh, to prevent things like that from happening, because other than the the, the capital wealthy uh, investor that has you know an open ended uh, uh, line of commercial credit or uh, a significant amount of, of of cash on hand or private investors or something like that, you know when you buy a piece of real property, whether it's a piece of dirt or a house, uh, you you do have to go through an appraisal and the lender wants to know what am I lending so it's it's not that common for property to uh, to to be sold well under or well overvalued um, within the given parameters of how stupid the system is okay the the predatory individuals in a situation like this are the buyers because remember your agent doesn't buy your property the buyer buys your property. So it is the case that a lot of times, and I don't know how predatory it is. It's opportunistic. This property is devalued. I know that it will return in value. Some people need money now. I'm willing to give it to them, and I'm willing to, to wait for the for the value to come back in return for my money now. So I don't even think that is that predatory. Um, in fact, I, again, I see that as like if somebody wants to sell and they need money, well, they're going to get what the property's worth now. I, the investor, am not being a predator. I am taking a relatively reasonable gamble that the property will re regain value and I will be able to make a profit in the future, but I, I assume the risk. That said, it's probably a low risk, and in this situation, my instinct would be to hold the property if you can. If you need the money, then... My opinion doesn't matter. You need the money. You got to take what you can get. If the if there's if there is substantial um, debt against the property in the form of either uh, straight debt or property taxes, and servicing that debt um, is expensive, it could be the case that even the appreciation that you would get is not worth the expense against the property. The next thing is, well, what kind of insurance is on this property? I mean, that's that, you know, and did the house burn down, right? Because there's, there's two different ways this happens. One is, you know, mom or grandma's house uh, burns to the ground and it's, it's totaled. And then the insurance company owes a certain amount of money to you as the policyholder or you as their representative uh, and, and their, their power of attorney, et cetera. Um, and that is going to generally be the replacement value of the home is what they're going to owe you. But if there's significant debt on the home, most of the money is going to go to pay off the lender, and you're just left with a piece of property and not much money. If the property's paid for and still fully insured, then you can recoup the value of the loss, and you're not required to take that money and put it into building a new home, and now you can sell the property. That would probably, as bad as it is, be the best-case scenario. I kind of feel like if that is the situation, you probably wouldn't be asking the question because the the answer would present itself well to you. Uh, if the property is not insured, and now all you're left with is the 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 the, the dirt, um, the only way that's going to happen is you don't have debt against it. So now all you're doing is paying property taxes, and you're paying property taxes on a block of dirt, which should be relatively low. Though don't don't expect the county and city to immediately drop it down, they're going to say how much they need the money. Uh, but, but in general, that's going to be, now you're paying property on unimproved dirt. Um, so that may make it easier to hold. 
And then that would probably be a hold situation. You have a low expense, etc. Um, the other thing that could have happened is, well, the town burned down. A lot of the surrounding properties burned down. But you still have a nice house. There's two ways to look at this. One is you may very well want to sell that home in the future after a good period of recovery because it's probably going to be worth more money. However, if you can just wait long enough for insurance payouts, there's a strong possibility that somebody whose house did burn down would want to buy it for you from you and probably pay you a fair value for it. And then you would be doing something that I generally don't try to do with real estate, and that is be nice. Right? I believe when it comes to real estate, you have to be a Vulcan, right? No emotion, don't give a shit, don't care how much of, how much you lost on the property, not my problem. I'm buying it today, so I'm I'm selling it, I'm buying it for fair market value. I'm selling it. I don't care how hard of a, a situation you're in. That's not my problem. If you don't buy it, somebody else will. I'm selling the property for what it's worth. That's how you have to handle real estate. No emotional attachment to it. I don't give a shit that your kids grew up in that house. Then don't sell it, right? I mean, that's that's when it comes to the deal part, I don't care. However, if you can be nice and it's beneficial, then you should, right? If it's good for you and good for someone else and you don't do it, you're just an asshole. And not the good kind of asshole that I was in the first call, right? The bad kind of asshole. So it could very well be the case that there are people who were displaced and lost homes that don't want to leave. And if that house is still standing, those are the first people I would approach about possibly buying it and write out real estate. You don't need a real estate agent if you have a willing buyer and a willing seller. They're absolutely nothing but a parasite in the situation, and everybody's better off without them in that situation. The only reason you need a real estate agent is, one, you have no idea how to sell your home yourself, or two, you don't want to deal with you know opening the door and being there. Uh, we used real estate agents in the past in situations where like, I was traveling, and Dorothy was going to be home, and it was just her, and it was just like, I didn't want to put her through that. But if you like can go to somebody and say, hey, would you like to buy my house? They say, yes. And they say, well, how much? And you say, well, this is what it's worth. And they say, okay. All they need to do is go get a mortgage. And you guys just contact, you know, uh, uh, through the mortgage company, a land title office and all that, and, and get your appraisals and all that done and just, just do it. So that's where I would look to sell first if you can. Who lost a home that needs one? Because they're probably, you know, and they probably have a big lump sum insurance check coming. So those are kind of all the scenarios I can see. But if you really believe the property will increase in value during recovery and you can wait, you should wait. But you then must calculate what is the expense of bearing the property over time. Because if it's, if it's you know, $500 a month and you hold it for a year and now you get $6,000 more for the property, all you did was let your money sit for zero interest for a year. You see how that works? So you gotta, you gotta do that math. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, this one on, a question on Bill Tong for breakfast. Hey, Jack and David, it's Hal Knights here, wondering what's going on with Bill Tong for breakfast. Give us an update. So maybe for those that are new to the show or just never checked it out, Bill Tong for breakfast was a, a, a brief stint of a cooking show that myself and my buddy David did, um, on my back porch. And we did ah, three or four episodes. And there's, there are two, at least two, if not three episodes of, of footage in the can, so to speak, um, that, that David never got edited and, and got put up on, on the YouTube channel, and hence I never got put up on the blog. 
And, and here's kind of really the long and short of what happened. Um, when we started doing this, Uh, my buddy David was in business for himself, and it gave him a great deal of flexibility. And uh, it's very difficult to be lured out of having your own business back into employment, but there are times when the lure is really, really good, and it, it is a really great opportunity that you'd kind of be foolish not to take. And that's what happened. He got one of those offers. He offers he's the, the caliber of a guy Uh, that, that, that when somebody decides they want him, they'll just keep yelling numbers at you until you say yes. And so he took a J-O-B situation, and that's just with the travel he has now and all. Honestly, when he is around and we can hang out, we don't want to do anything that approaches work. Um, we just don't. We want to sit here with our dogs. We want to watch the new ducks run around, stare at my fish tanks, and, and drink an old-fashioned or a martini. And so that's just where we're at. The show was kind of built less on here's how to cook and more on two guys cooking shit and making fun of each other and mocking each other and telling crazy stories. And, and that worked really good. As a really, and Dave and I have that shtick together and we can do that. I really don't have another person that I would, that I would even consider trying to do that type of a show with. He's the only person I know that is, 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 is much like me and is much damaged in the brain cells uh, to do that with and is willing to sacrifice his liver on uh, those type of outings that I'm willing to allow to come along for that ride. Um, so it's kind of an irreplaceable duo as characters. So that is, let's say, permanently on the shelf. I'm not saying it's gone forever, but it's permanently on the shelf. Don't look for it to come back. Could someday? Who knows? We, we both need something to do in our retirements, right? On the other side of this, the concept of Bill Tong for Breakfast from a pure cooking show was let's focus on meat uh, and some vegetables and stuff, but really let's just say meat-centric. Um, you'll never see me doing an egg souffle with lemon drops or a cake or crap like that. And I do have a passion for cooking. The way we ended up doing it, Dave and I, was he always pushed me to do it because he knows I love it. And I'm like, I don't have time to do the editing crap. And if you'll do it, I'll be the on-camera guy and you can do the editing crap. Then we'll do it. And we agreed and we gave it a shot. And it, I think it worked really well. We had to get through some technical stuff, but I think the overall presentation was pretty damn good. I think we could you know, sell it to a network, honestly, if we did it long enough. Um, I don't think we would because we wouldn't have the freedom anymore and they wouldn't let us do half of what we do, but I think we could. It has that kind of potential. However, I have thought, and I've been talking to Dorothy about this, about doing a weekly episode where I cook something. And it would literally be no editing. I mean, none. If it was in multiple segments, it would go on the YouTube channel in a playlist and you just have to watch it in order. And all it would be is an upload and then throw it on the, the, the Bill Tong for Breakfast, uh, Bill Tong for, uh, Bill Tong for Breakfast blog, right? Um, and, and funny thing there, the reason I misstated that is Bill Tong for Breakfast was an accident, the name. Um, because we do generally imbibe in a few martinis or something thereof when David's over here, when we originally came up for the idea, I, I think I actually had a superior uh, name for the show. Bill Tong for dessert. Bill Tong for dessert. And 
somehow in my convoluted state when I grabbed the domain and, and everything, it was built on for breakfast. And before I even realized what I had done, I had built because when I get in the mode to do something, I had built the site and did the logo and all that. And I'm like, well, okay, that's what it is now. So if you'd like to see the return of Biltong for breakfast as just a straight up, here's what I'm cooking and how I'm doing it type thing, and you're fine with no editing and, and, and just being a straight up, because this is what it has to be for me and Dorothy for this to work if I'm going to do it. it. It literally has to be, it's Wednesday, I'm cooking something cool, Dorothy goes, hey, do you want to video this? And I say, yeah, and she just turns the camera on. And as it's getting done, it's getting, like, as that, as that segment's done, upload. As that segment's done, upload. As that segment's done, upload. Um, it won't even be linked together. It'll be in broken segments, because most things I'm not going to cook straight through. Um, I hate something YouTube did. I, I really do, and I, I don't understand why they did it, because it, it took literally no effort for them to maintain it, and they're just stupid for doing it. YouTube used to have an editor's studio. They have a new one now, but it doesn't do jackedly shit. Um, but they used to have one that if you had a whole bunch of uh, uh, clips, you could just pop them all together and splice them. Like, you could do some editing, but it was really clunky. But if you just had five clips that you wanted to be a single video, you could just go click, 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 name the new video, and hit render. And it took like a day, but you didn't have to do shit. You left, you could close your browser, and, you know, 12 hours later, you'd have a rendered video. And that was... Awesome. And if they ever brought that back, I'd be happy to piece it back together. On the other hand, thinking from the term of content creation, the more little videos, the more you attract people. So if you would be interesting, interested in, uh, I guess it would be the, the, the 2.0 version of Bill Tom for Breakfast, Jack in the Kitchen, uh, let me know. Uh, blog comment, hit me up on Facebook, wherever, email, what have you. But, uh, I'm willing to do it if there's sufficient interest. I'm probably going to happen whether there's interest or not because um, I just like to do this, and I like to teach people how to cook, and I love to cook. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, have a call now on saving cash in the home. Jack, a while back you talked about storing cash at home, and I wanted to offer some tips. Have small bills on hand. The people I saw trying to use hundreds for small purchases after hurricanes were sometimes turned away by businesses because they were going to wipe out the till or they were concerned about counterfeits. 20s are great until you want to grab something from a vending machine at a storm shelter or rest stop, so make sure you've got some singles. You can easily fit 50 or or $100 in singles or fives in the smallest size food saver vacuum sealer bags. Pop a scrap of paper with a total amount written on it for reference and vacuum seal it to a size that discreetly fits in lots of places in your home. It's compact, rigid, and waterproof. A 1.77-ounce M&M mini tube will fit 80 quarters, which is $20, which is also the standard roll you get from a bank. Depending on where you live, one or two of these should be enough to get you through any and all toll roads if you have to evacuate. Also, if you have 420s, a 10, a 5, and 5 singles, you've got $100 and can pull out any exact dollar amount up to the full 100, which is ideal for situations where you're traveling through areas where cash is scarce and cards aren't an option or card readers may be compromised. It also helps with OPSEC because if you fold it right, it looks like a few bucks in singles, which is less enticing than a wallet stuffed with large bills. Thanks for all you do. I mean, that's like... 
an expert level, uh, expert council level response right there. If somebody would have asked that question and I had a council member that I would have sent that to, that was perfect. I don't have a lot to add to it. I actually have kind of an aside here that you would never even know if I didn't tell you. So this came in on the speak pipe. And when you uh, fill out something for the speak pipe, there's a place to put your name in. And you can put anything in there from nothing to uh, J.P. Hawkins or uh, your actual name or, you know, Frederick Batiste, I don't, whatever. You can put in General George S. Pat. No one's going to, you know, care. Um, but this guy put in, given the subject, I'd prefer not to say my name. I don't really have a problem with that, but I, I do want to kind of speak to something. I get emails all the time. Please don't say what my name is on the air. And then you look at the email, and the guy's name is like Mike. Like, he doesn't give you a last name anyway. Um, you know, if you don't give me a name, do you know what I usually do? I make one up. My favorite one to make up is Mike or Tom. Those are my two most often made-up names. They're also names I see a lot. That's why I use them. Uh, but when I get an email, and it's like I look at it, and I go, I just need to present this right. I go like, yeah, this email's from Mike because it says something like shabugi21 at, you know, diddlydoo.com for an email address, and that's the whole thing. You know, and it's like, well, you know, so just don't put a name in there. I'll make one up for you. Or if you don't want your name used, make one up. You know, say you're Mike or Tom or, or Bill or Susie or whatever. But then I want you to think about this. All right? You just kind of like, Let's back the paranoia down a little bit, can we? Yeah. So here's what I'm going to say. Let's say that you called with this thing or you, you, you emailed either one and you're like, Hi, Jack, this is Mark from Illinois. And my question is, how do you avoid uh, the government knowing that you are running a, a heroin farm on the roof of your house? Right? As bad as it gets. Um, do you think anybody named Mark or from Illinois or a Mark from Illinois would be like, Oh, gee, they're going to think it's me. Right? How many marks are there in Illinois? So I was going to say that in the future, for all callers and emails and stuff like that, if you're not comfortable, just don't. But if you want to be like a regular presentation here, uh, then your first name and your state is not going to help anybody really identify you unless you know, let's say you have coworkers who listen to the show or something like that. Uh, and you know, then change one of those. I do think if you live in a small town and you're like, you know, Jack, this is, this is, uh, and especially if you had like a weird, not a weird name, but a little bit more unusual name, right? Let's say if you were like, hi, Jack, this is Ivan from Sheboyganville, Iowa. Then if there's anybody in Sheboyganville that, that, that knows an Ivan, they probably think it's you. But in general... You know, Mike from Illinois, Tom from Pennsylvania, Bill from Florida. These are all things I say all the time. And that person does, that person does exist. Some, I'm sure there's a Tom in Florida, right? But the person that wrote in, that's not who that is. I just try to do that to make it more presentation friendly for you guys. And I have no problem with you lying to me and saying you're Mark from Illinois if you're really Mike from California. And no one will ever know anyway, even if you use the right name. If I if I called the place and I wasn't on the air all the time where people know my voice, and I was like, hey, this is Jack in Texas. I was wondering, there ain't no way in hell anybody would ever be like, I know who that is. And if they know by your voice, yeah, they're going to know who you are anyway, no matter what you say. Or they're going to say, like, I heard this guy named Tom from Florida. He sounded just like you. Anyway, just I just thought that was funny that some people get so worried about that. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call.
Hi, Jack. My question is for the proper operation of the carry smart canner. Normally when canning, once the pressure valve is up on a canner, you are to let it exhaust for 10 minutes and then place the weight on the exhaust port. With the carry, the manual states that when the display says E10, you should immediately place the weight to airtight. When doing this, I find the canner will oftentimes only count down one or two minutes before the timer begins. I've reached out to the company and have received conflicting feedback. I was hoping you could clarify. Thank you very much for your time. Ivan from the People's Republic of Illinois. <laughs> I, 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 I totally forgot that that dude's name was Ivan. That wasn't planned when I said strange name. Ivan from Sheboyganville, Iowa, right? But he's Ivan from Illinois. Ivan, like I said, Ivan's not a strange name. It's just not as, as common a name. And if you're in a small town, your name's Ivan. Anyway, Ivan, let me uh, try to explain this to you and everybody else. The first thing I have to ex explain is I do heavily endorse this product. And the main reason I heavily endorse this product, it is the only product of its kind available today. An electric canner that does have everything it needs to safely pressure can and also will can quart, not pine jars. If there was another product that did that, that had a company owning it, that knew what the hell they were talking about, I would recommend that one instead. Additionally, I endorse this as a private individual with no connection to the company whatsoever. Okay, I do not have a contact there, uh, though I did kind of burn the hell out of one one time to get something done I needed done, and I will stand on people and get things done whenever I can for myself or anybody else when I make a product recommendation, uh, but it was about a damaged one that got damaged when it was being returned for repair, and they didn't want to fix it and make it right, and I made them do it. But it was in that that I learned something. This company has been bought and sold twice in the past three years, and the people that are doing all the customer service and whatnot today generally, day-to-day, -day, don't know diddly shit about the products that they sell. And they're not doing a good job in documentation. They're not doing a good job in customer service. And I know their product at this point better than anybody I've talked to there anyway. And the people that actually developed the product probably went away during one of these acquisitions, and they're not there anymore. Okay? It is impossible... To screw this up with this canner. Okay? You can't screw this up. You don't need to worry about waiting for the E10 thing. If you see E anything on this canner, it's an error code. It's an error code. What that means is, hey dummy, you didn't close the pet cock, so I can't start. So whoever wrote that documentation is wrong, and anybody repeating it is wrong. This is a computer-controlled item, and that is not how this works. Okay? If you put your stuff you're going to can in there, hit the pressure can, close the petcock immediately, what you will notice is, is it builds up temperature, 
you will see a little valve behind the petcock. And steam will begin to come out of it. And steam will come out of it for a period of time. And then, after enough steam comes out of it, it will close itself. And when it closes itself, it will start the canning process or the pressure cooking process, depending on what you're doing. Again, this is a computer-controlled device, and it can sense when the temperature's been there long enough to allow that valve to close. You don't have to do anything. The proper use of this is to put your, your hot cans inside. You should always do hot canning method with pressure canning. With the, 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 the rings on and, and what have you, just like you do any canning, lock it down, set the time, close the valve, and hit the button. It will take care of it all from there. You can't do it wrong. You can't screw it up. What you're doing is causing an error to show up, and the unit is sophisticated enough that when you correct the error, it continues the process and takes over. But I, I, what I'll, I'll tell you to do, if you don't believe me, you don't think it's safe, whatever, just you know, put a couple cups of water in it, and don't put anything else in it, and turn it on, and set it to pressure can for 10 minutes or whatever, and watch it. And you'll watch, you'll find that little valve I'm talking about, and you'll see like a little spittle of water coming up out of it and steam, and, and it'll be steaming and steaming, and all of a sudden it'll go, and it'll close, and you'll see the unit, like it'll do a little cycle, and it'll start running the time. So that's it. That's all you have to do. And if I could talk to somebody there who was, you know, with open ears and mind, I would explain to them how their own product works. And I would be happy to do it. And I would honestly love to have a, some sort of a formal relationship with this company and help them fix their shit. Because this is a company that I recommend for the strength of their product in spite of their service. And I, I will continue to recommend that product right up until someone else comes out and goes, look what we have. And the day that product comes out, if, it's, if it passes muster, if it's safe, if it works as advertised, and if that company has their head out of their fourth point of contact, I will be like, this is the new product I recommend. So strength of product, four stars. Competency of customer service, one One, and they really need to get their shit together uh, in a big way. There was a time they didn't even know what their error codes meant. I had an E04, which basically means it's broke. And that's why I sent mine back. They lost it for 45 days. It was all beat to shit, and they told me they wanted me to pay for them to ship it back to me, and they couldn't fix it because it was my fault that it was damaged. That's when I learned all this. And when I explained to them the financial liability they were creating for themselves just from the standpoint that I sell you know, a few hundred of these for them a year alone. Um, all of a sudden, we got a little more reasonable, and what they ended up doing was just sending me a brand new one. And uh, I had one other instance with a customer service issue that I was able to intervene on behalf of for one of you guys, and both of those interactions, I got what I needed done, but I had to be a complete, total, supersonic asshole to get it done. And I don't like companies where I have to do that to get something done. So I don't like the company. I love the product. There you go. Let's take another one. Uh, this is, again, more, it's kind of a solicitation call for me. Like, I want you to work with you on this or whatever. 
But I'm going to go ahead and play it anyway because there's a couple things here. Number one, if you want to work with me on something, send me an email. Now, this lady doesn't really listen that much. It's more her husband that listens, so I can understand why this got maybe a little confused, but send me an email. Uh, she also asked for my good email. If you listen to the show, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. But uh, I'm going to come back and talk to you guys a little bit about my opinion of CBD um, and the standpoint of cannabinoids and, and what I think the real future potential of them is. Season's greetings, Jack. My name is Blair Workala. I am a holistic RN, and um, I have uh, sites, Access to Green and Better Fat Burner, where I emphasize sustainable fat loss. But recently, I have become immersed in the therapeutic potential of bringing balance to the endocannabinoid system and um, was on a, the, a search, you know, online and you know, everywhere for the most therapeutic product I could find. And, you know, I went online and most, most companies were vague. They didn't, uh, they didn't say the concentration, the milligram per mLs of therapeutic ingredient or the CBD. And anyway, lo and behold, I found it locally. And it's a company called Hemp Magic. And they have high bioavailability, high concentration, full spectrum, organic. It's even liposomal. And so I've become affiliated with her, and her name is Melissa Lee Clark of Hemp Magic. She is a fearless businesswoman, and she's also a hoot. She'd make for a really good interview. Um, I did cut the call there. It's the rest of it you don't really need to listen to for the purposes of what I'm going to do with it today. I did get back with this gal at, at her email, and, uh, you know, we'll see what comes of it. And I told her, and this is I'm going to say for everybody out there, If you know someone that you would think would make a good guest for the show, have them go fill out the guest form. Uh, there is no other way to get on the show. You can write me a 72-page dissertation uh, as to why you should get a BB gun for Christmas and that you won't shoot your eye out, and I'm going to still say go fill out the guest form. If, if, if the Great Pumpkin appears and says, Jack, I am the Great Pumpkin from Charlie Brown, I wish to be on the show, I'm going to say Great Pumpkin, go fill out the guest form. Like, There's no way around this. It is the only way you will ever get on the show. It's the only way your friends, friends, uncles, former roommate will ever get on the show. You need to go fill out the guest form, and you need to fill it out completely, including the setup questions. This is how we evaluate a pitch to determine whether or not it's a good fit for our audience. Sometimes we'll be like, it is. We just book you, and that's the majority. Sometimes we're like, no, no, and no, and we just don't respond. Sometimes I'll be like, no, and I will respond to tell them how much no I mean no. Uh, and then there's other times where I'll say, you know, I think there's something here I'd like you to reconsider your subject a little bit and resubmit. And then either they get really ass hurt about it and tell me to go screw myself or they redo it, and then they usually turn into great interviews. But you got to do the guest form. So just a little side there. But on the CBD thing and, and, and cannabis as a whole, number one, I think cannabis, um, and in this case we're talking about hemp, CBD oil derived from hemp is legal in the United States everywhere. It just is. Uh, there is federal prohibitions on the growing of hemp that many states are thumbing their nose at and letting people grow hemp. I can't even believe I have to say that, letting people grow hemp. But we're talking about, they, they say, you know, rope, not dope. Um, the, the CBDs in hemp can be the same or better or different or whatever as, as, as what you would think of as, gar you know, regular, everyday I smoke it to get high cannabis, uh, which has also THC in it, where these hemp products have, and I'm going to say just the hemp itself, has little to no THC. THC is the, the component of cannabis that gives you what we think of as being high. And uh, 
that type of cannabis has both the CBDs and the THC. Um, I'm getting about to the limit of my knowledge. All right, I, but what I what I kind of want to say as an advocate here for legalization and really decriminalization. In fact, no legislation whatsoever. I I don't think that we should be putting anybody in jail or prison or in any way interfering with their life, including up to fining them one penny for the possession and use of the plant of cannabis. I don't think it should be any plant, but this plant in particular, I think, is if there is such thing as a gift of God to man, cannabis is a gift of God to man. Uh, it is not the big giant bugaboo that they made you scared of with the you know, Reagan's war on drug in the 80s. Uh, no one smokes pot and goes out and shoots a bunch of people. Nobody smokes pot and goes out and kills 97 people in a road rage incident. Nobody smokes pot and dies. Okay? It's all bullshit. And I think that both CBD-based products and full-on, you know, normal cannabis, if you want to call it that, products, have tremendous medicinal potential. CBD in particular... I think some of the areas that it has the most potential to help people, uh, number one is people uh, returning from military service and in other situations um, dealing with PTSD. I, I talked to a number of people uh, when I did a recent veterans benefit, uh, some in particular psych psychologists, counselors, etc., working with veterans dealing with this, and, and none of them as part of the VA, like all of these in like private uh, practice and stuff like that. So they've, they've, they've seen their people get uh, dramatic results from the use of, of CBD products. Um, you know, this, this gal's on and on about how these are so special and high. Pretty much I think that most of the stuff that's available is probably high quality. Uh, I'm sure there's some there's junk out there, but I don't think there's, you have to go to any single source to get good quality in this, this world today. I think there's been too much uh, positive results to think that everything out there sucks. I do know that some people have almost no response to it at all, and other people have uh, significant responses. The other thing is, if it is something that corrects a problem and you take it and it doesn't do anything to you, that's not a bad thing. That means it doesn't have negative side effects. I, I have not talked to anybody that's used a CBD-based product that says, you know, it made me sick or it made me feel bad or it made me depressed or, you know, it made me eat more or it made me eat less or anything like that in a negative way. I haven't heard anybody with a negative other than it didn't do anything. And I think if you're looking at something to be medicinal, that's the very best thing you can get, something that only corrects a problem. Now, I have had people say, you know, I have this problem. I tried CBD oil for it. It didn't do anything for the problem. And either, okay, well, so, you know, nothing works for everything. In fact, I, I become entirely skeptical, at least of the messenger, when they claim that anything fixes everything. You know, that's like the colloidal silver scams and stuff like that. Oh, just, and, and some of the people in the essential oils business, like essential oils are great and they can do a lot of things, but you get people like in the MLM cults of essential oils and like, you know, well, he's got, you know, uh, he's got three forms of cancer. Oh, use lavender oil. Shut up. Get out of here. So I, I don't think anything works on everything and I don't think anything works for everybody. But I think CBD has massive potential to help people specifically that have uh, prob mental problems. And I think a lot of times we use that word, we got to stop having the feeling about that word that we do. 
When I say mental problems, you probably think of like, you know, uh, I can't remember her name, but the the character Sally Field played. It was all neurotic and stuff like that, Uh, what have you, something like that, or somebody that, you know, like a complete cuckoo or something. Mental problems means that my mind's not working properly. Mental problems. And there are a lot of ways that we can have mental problems without it even being to the point of what you would consider a diagnosable mental illness. People have anxiety and can't sleep. Some people, okay, a cup of chamomile tea fixes that. Some people, the the right form of a CBD oil fixes that. And I, I think if you look... When it comes to anything and everything cannabis, there are three groups that are spending the most money to make it go away. One is alcohol. The alcohol lobbies are spending tons of money to prevent cannabis legalization. Again, this is more the other side of things here. But there's been enough information so far that people tend to drink less if they have another option. And it's specifically more for young people. So a person that, you know, is a social drinker that's 40, if all of a sudden they can get a hold of cannabis, they may not all of a sudden start drinking a lot less. But someone that's coming of age and is presented with these two options, it may become their relaxation mode of choice is this, this, this cannabis thing. And if you're selling beer, especially the big mega, you know, brewers and stuff like that, this isn't good for your business. So they're working hard to block it. The prison lobby. There are, there are prisons that have been privatized, that private companies bought from the government. They're now turning around and suing the government because they don't have enough inmates to make money off their prison anymore. This is a sin in and of itself, but obviously that tells you the prison lobbies do not want less prisoners. They want more prisoners. That's how they make their money. So they're spending money to block, and Big Pharma. Big Pharma is spending tons of money to block the legalization, research, development of cannabis as a treatment aid because they can't make money off of it. And the concept that cannabis today is still considered a Schedule I narcotic, which means it has no medical use whatsoever and a high potential for abuse, is disgraceful in the country. It's supposed to be the freest nation on earth. So I, I, I'm just... Flat out, I am a flat out advocate for both forms of cannabis. And I think that when people have to get some kind of visceral reaction, it's evil, it's the devil, whatever, most of those people, you can forgive them because of their ignorance and because of the mental programming that's been done to them. I have yet to meet a person that uses any form of cannabis who is a problem in my life because of cannabis use. Now, I've had people that are a problem in my life that happen to use cannabis, but the reason they're a problem is generally something else to say. Anyway, I, I am actually really open, whether it's this person or anybody out there, to having someone come on and talk at a high level, very intelligently, specifically about the CBD side of cannabis, not so much because it's legal in that of itself, but because I know it's something that if... Somebody out there hears and says, that really might work for me, that it's available. No matter where, without threat of violence at the point of a gun from the state. So it's the thing that you can use. And so I, I, I really, if not this person, or if I, you know, I have more than one person on about one thing, if you know someone who would be a good guest on this subject, 
And not your buddy who just uses it. Like somebody that really knows the industry, knows the product, knows the different applications, etc. I would love to hear from them. Have them fill out what? The guest form. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. What are your opinions on using bots for posting content to social media platforms you're not active on? Details. I recently started two side hustles. A lifestyle blog at ganderflight.co and curb2cash.com which is an Instagram page I'm using to document the items I pick up at the curb on trash day and flip them for cash. Whenever I post to Instagram, there's an option to have a bot repost the content to Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. At this point, I don't have a desire nor time to fully utilize Twitter and Tumblr. Should I, re- should I be reposting my content on these platforms to widen my net, even though I won't be active on them? Is it worth the extra publicity while running the risk of turning some folks off because I won't be communicating back in these platforms? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Joshua. So actually, I think you should use the, this automation and, and put your content into these other platforms, but I, I think maybe you're looking at it wrong. The number one reason I'm okay with you using it is whatever you're saying on the platform that you are using it on, you're also saying on the platform that you're not generally using as a main line of communication. So in other words, not generic. It's not something you wouldn't say when you initially presented the material. So if it was just like some kind of bot, there was a true bot, that just like whenever you made a post to your blog, it just went and grabbed whatever it thought it should grab and stuck it over here on Instagram and it stuck it over here on Facebook and it stuck it over here. I would not advise that. Because nothing of you is in there. But since you're taking the time to craft your presentation, to put it on Instagram, then and you're, you're hashtagging it and all that stuff, then letting it be put exactly as you put it on other platforms and using automation to do that, awesome. Now, you're concerned, well, what if I turn people off because I don't engage with them on that platform? That's where I think your mistake comes from. The reality is you will probably get very little engagement on these other platforms. But you never know what's going to happen. And that's the reason you should be doing it. And if you, and, and what you should do is set things up so you get notified if someone comments on these automated posts. And take the 10 flipping seconds to respond to every single comment you get. Because if you get 10 a day... It's a hundred seconds, and if it's not worth a hundred seconds of your time to respond to people that want to respond to you in a business that you have, you do not deserve the business that you have, no matter what way you or what platform you're going to respond on. So the majority of it will get no response. And then you would say, but what if I get start getting starting lots of responses on this place over here? Then dummy, you need to engage on that platform. Period. Okay? Now what has happened is you've used automation determining a channel that has high engagement, and now it's absolutely worth your time over there. The reason you're not engaging on those platforms isn't because you don't have time. It's because you've made a calculation that this platform and maybe this other platform are the two platforms that are most most worth my time. Great. I totally Totally, 100% Spirico endorsement of that decision. You cannot be everywhere. Now, you use engaged automation to determine if another one exists. 
And if one exists that has high response rates, specifically from people you do not know who are not on your other platforms, if there's four guys that comment all the time and they're also on your Instagram, screw it. There's no, there's no benefit there. But if all of a sudden you start getting organic growth of response rates, hey, that's really cool. I'm wondering where I can find one of those, blah, 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 and it's on Tumblr or whatever, Shaboogieville, whatever the next freaking thing is that you can automate, when that response comes, then you engage, and if that response becomes significant, you keep engaging. Otherwise, you're the guy, well, I don't really use the phone anymore. Your freaking desk phone rings all the time. You never answer. It's full of voice messages of people asking to buy your shit, but you don't want to talk to them because it's the phone. So that use the automation, make it as brain-dead and simple as possible, put as little effort as possible into it, but if something gains traction, then engage and respond to that traction. I doubt you'll spend more than five extra minutes of your day if you start doing this. And if you ever do, it'll be worth it. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. Uh, last one of the day, the uh, Shakespearean question of the week. Hi, Jack. This is Brian from Central Alabama, MSB member and dedicated listener since 2010. My question is, under what circumstances should I consider leasing versus buying a car? Background. I've always bought and used three- to five-year-old vehicles for cash and driven them until the wheels just about fall off. However, my wife is taking a promotion at work, and with that, we'll be required to occasionally drive and entertain some higher-level executives within the corporation. So we feel it is probably time to upgrade her 12-year-old 200,000-plus-mile commuter car to something a little nicer. I'm pretty sure I've heard you mention over the years that you own your truck but lease Dorothy's vehicle. I have never considered leasing a good financial option. Is it, or should I be looking for another gently used car to buy? Thanks for all you do. Um, I'm going to start out with a general statement about this subject, and it has to do with people that take any of three approaches. The number one reason people always pay full price uh, in cash and buy up front or always finance a car or always lease a car is because they think, and it doesn't matter what I say after that, because as soon as you think, what you're acknowledging is you don't know. It's, so it's that simple. So the answer always lies in what type of vehicle do I want to drive? Now, which option gives me the best deal in totality of the deal? How do the numbers work out? And buying a used vehicle, three or four years old, at a deep discount for cash and driving it to the wheels fall off works for certain things. My F-350 that I put 10,000 miles on a year, if I'm lucky, fits that definition perfectly. I would have to be a complete and utter moron to go out and lease a $60,000 truck for three years, only have to turn it back in, that I drive 1,000 miles a year. I mean... There is no way that I, I would run it if I had the, the, the decision to make, but there is no way that that math is ever going to check out. It just isn't. And with that little bit of use, I'll drive that truck to probably 2030, and I might put a couple thousand dollars worth of work in it and a set of tires on it in that time. Maybe a set of brakes again. I don't know. I put on brakes uh, a while ago, and I don't 
going to be a long time before I wear them out at 1,000 miles a year, isn't it? And the years that I put like 3,000 miles on it, like, you know, two of it is highway never touching the brakes. So, yeah, I'm not going to need to put a lot of money in that truck. In general, I find the worst option for many vehicles is purchase through finance. Again, we have to run the numbers to work this out. Where leases work, in many instances, the scenario you're starting with is one of them. Okay? Um, you need a, a higher-end vehicle that's going to be used, not high mileage, but used a lot, a lot of frequency. This is where leasing shines. The other side of this, what makes leases work? It's always the same thing. It is either the, the vehicle is so stupid cheap and the company is so desperate to keep enough of them turned and journed on the road that you can drive it for like less than 200 bucks with almost nothing down and either walk away at the end of the lease or pay something like a $500 disposal fee, or roll it into another lease and continue to drive a brand new vehicle for $200 or less. Those scenarios, there is a cost associated with owning a vehicle, and that's so cheap, and in two, three years, you're not going to put brakes on it, you're not going to put tires on it, all you're going to do is change the oil and drive it, and it's somebody else's problem, that works. That's at the low end of the market. You know, Those are your Nissan Altimas, your Toyota Camrys. There's the middle of the market. This is a little bit higher end of a vehicle, not incredibly desirable. Lease almost always will lose in this vehicle class. Then there's your upper end, highly desirable, high resale vehicle. Those vehicles, you'll be able to drive for two or three years. You'll be able to, at, at the end of your lease, if you didn't exceed your mileage and you took good care of it, you did all the maintenance, when you bring it back to the dealership, they will give you money to get the car back. This is what we've done with our Toyota 4Runner. I have my wife in a 4Runner that if we went out and paid cash for it, we would pay about $55,000, for it. We drive it for $316 a month for three years. That means over three years we have $11,000 into that vehicle. And a $2,000 down payment is what we get. So $13,000 we have into that vehicle over three years. This means that my wife carting my grandkids around, I don't have to worry. I don't have any worries whatsoever. Roadside assistance comes with it. Two years of the three years of oil changes and basic maintenance comes with it. It's included. If anything happens to the vehicle and it has to be at the, the, the dealership for more than a day, they give my wife a loaner car. Right? I'm buying all that for $13,000 for three years. I can't buy a used vehicle for $13,000, drive, you know, drive it into the ground over three years, and anything you buy for $13,000 in three years will be worthless. Okay, That I'm comfortable with my wife in for that money. So that's already going to win out over just financially. Just wins out over the alternative. I'll drive a $13,000. I'll drive a $5,000 vehicle. I'm not putting my wife and my grandkids in it when she's not high mileage, but on the road every single day, multiple times a day. Picks the girl up in the morning, goes and picks the kid up from school, drops the kids off with the, with the parents. That's a day for her. It's all little short trips, but it's all time she's out there. I'm not doing anything else. So then it comes down, okay, you've made a decision. This is the type of vehicle you want for me. Do I buy it or do I lease it? When I ran the numbers, where I ended up is 
on financing this vehicle, even with my credit, which is about as good as it gets, my payment on the vehicle would have been about $540 on a 60-month purchase. Okay? That is a lot more money. That is a ton more money. It's about $6,000 more over three years. $6,000 more over the three years. Plus, I got to keep paying for it for another two years. Got it? That's expensive. That's ex And that was actually the lower cost one, the one we did the first time. That was like the 40, right around 39.9. So the one we have now would probably be closer to $600. I'm driving it for the same price as the first one, and the cost of buying it went up. Okay, so you start to see where that works out. And then, well, that begets the question. At 36 months, what are my options? Well, my options with the lease attorney didn't get a new one. Take the couple thousand dollars back. So I said it doesn't cost me 13 grand. Because the last one I got $2,600 back on. So my entire down payment plus a little bit I got back. So I take the money back and I go do something else in my life. Or I can convert it to a buy. This is where I made the big decision. So how far ahead would I have been if I had done the purchase? The answer is $840 odd dollars. 840 bucks. So by giving them an extra $6,000, I get to be $800 ahead on, 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 the, on the value of the vehicle underlying. You don't do that. And so this is what you must do. You must get the terms of the buy, and you must get the terms of the lease, and you build an Excel spreadsheet, and you compare the total cost of the vehicle and consider your options at the end of it. Because people say, well, Jack, why don't you just buy the damn thing full price for cash? Because then, dummy... Instead of spending basically about $11,000, because when it's all said and done with, it cost me $11,000 by the time I got my money back, $11,000 to, to have my wife drive that vehicle for three years. So in, in the other instance, I spend almost $50,000, and at three years, I have the vehicle still, but I'm out $29,000 more? What world does that make sense in? Will you still have the vehicle? Yeah, but I'm not $29,000 more. I can drive another one for another three years that's brand new, and I'm still ahead. And then this is the bigger thing. It, it's also how do you treat money? Because if you treat money poorly, it treats you poorly. If you treat money well, it treats you well. In that period of time, I don't have that $29,000 over six years. What is $29,000 worth to me over six years invested in one of my businesses? Invested with my financial advisor. Invested in the part of my portfolio I self-manage. I'm going to tell you it's worth more than $29,000 because I know what I'm doing. So it's not $29,000. Over six years, it's more like thirty-five dollars to $40,000 that I'm in the negative by not having the ability to use that money for the opportunity that it presents me. But this is, this is not something I think. This is something I know because I model all decisions of this size in Excel. So what I would encourage you to do, decide the vehicle you want or the couple options. Because no matter what you will, we need anything that's blah, blah, blah. You're going to come up like, well, I either want this, this, or this, right? And you're going to all be the same from, you know, there's the Toyota one and the Ford one and the Chevy one or whatever, you know, the Dodge one and the, the Ford one and the, you know, uh, the, the Audi or whatever, you know, whatever it's going to be. 
and then let them beat each other up, first of all. Tell, yeah, you know, what are we going to do to make a deal today? Well, we're not, because I'm waiting for the Toyota guy to get back for me, and I'm waiting for the Nissan guy to get back for me. Oh, we've got blah, blah. Just shut up. Put your offer together, and make sure it's your best offer when it comes out. I want to see the numbers for a purchase, and I want to see the numbers for a lease at 24 and 36 months. And I don't want to hear any talk. I just want you to go do that. Okay, can you do that for me? Because if you can't, and I, 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 I'm honest to God, this is how I talk to car salespeople. Because if you can't, I'm sure there's someone else here who can do that for me. So either you can do that for me, and once you get those numbers put together for me, let me tell you something. If I don't like them, and you tell me you're going to go back to your manager and see if you can make them better, I'm going to be very, very upset with you. I'm going to be very, very angry, and I'm going to talk to your manager, and we're not going to deal with each other. I'm going to deal directly with your manager. So you need to make sure that whatever you come back to me is the damn well best you can do right out of the gate. Do we understand each other? Because if we don't understand each other, tell me now, my time is very valuable to me, and I don't have any time to waste. This is either going to be the easiest sale you make in your whole year, Or it's going to be a sell you don't make. And I, my wife, if she was sitting next to me right now, would be rolling her eyes and nodding her head. Because this is how I am. Because I'm buying a car. I'm not your friend. She always says, they're so nice. I don't care. I'm not there to be your friend. I'm there to buy a car. If I could stick my parameters into a machine that would spit the numbers out and I didn't have to talk to you, I would prefer that. But they put you here. Now I must speak to you. So this is what I need you to do for me. And I do it too. I come back and I, well, I think I can do a little better. Great. Well, I'll go talk to my manager. No, go get your manager. And when the manager comes out, I'll say, I don't deal with liars. And they'll get real offended. I'll say, do you want to sell a car or not? Okay, because I'm not dealing with your salesman. I told them to give me the best offer they could. You either tell me now this is the best you can do or you can do better. If you can do better, you either deal with it or get me another salesman. And remember this if I come back to you. I'm dead serious, guys. That's how I am. So you get those competing offers. And then you drive the vehicles, if you, if you haven't driven the vehicle for And then you decide, well, we want, this is the one we want. And then you take the two-year, three-year, and the finance, and you build Excel models. You, what's, what's the payoff or trade value at the end? Because a good, a good dealership is going to tell you, when this vehicle's returned, unless you, you know, smoked in it or you let your kids rub jelly on the headline or whatever this is what it's going to be worth if you stay inside your mileage this is what it's going to cost you if you go over your mileage per mile right and then you have all the numbers and then you run them and i'm going to tell you this is what happens when you think instead of no my sister-in-law recently bought a vehicle on a six-year car note six years she's paying far more for her car which is like a $28,000 car, then, then we're paying to drive a $50,000 vehicle. Far more. Not a little bit, a lot more. I told them, listen, you don't have to do anything except get the numbers for me. Just don't make a decision. Get me the numbers. Let me drop them in one of my spreadsheets. Since I do this, I can pretty much just pick one in the past and... File save as new and boom, drop the numbers in and I will let you know what you're doing. Oh, okay. And they nodded their heads and guess what happened? A week later, bought a vehicle on a six-year note that will be positively worthless by the time it's paid off. That will cost them tens of thousands of dollars more than restructuring the deal some other way. I already know this. And you know what I said about it to them? 
absolutely effing nothing. You made your decision. You're grown-ass people. You do what you want. But that's what happens when you think versus know. It costs you over your life in individual deals. A thousand bucks here, twenty thousand bucks here, five hundred dollars here, two hundred dollars here, fifty bucks there, forty-five bucks there. Oh, it's only forty-five bucks. Forty-five bucks every month over the life of your life in wor working, and it's thousands of dollars that didn't go into your investments or to your business or to buy something higher quality somewhere else that cost you even more money. Because you think versus no. If you ever find yourself, when you're making financial decisions, saying, I think, you are wrong. You're wrong for thinking because you could know. Because we always say Excel doesn't lie. Well, the reason Excel doesn't lie is because math is absolute. Numbers can be you know, added, subtracted, multiplied, divide, and can spit out a definitive answer. If we're talking about how best to solve a problem, there's a lot of variables in there that we can't be concrete on and unknowns and shit like that. When you're buying a car and you know the value of the vehicle and you know the value of the vehicle the day you drive it off the lot and hit, take the initial depreciation hit and you know the value of the vehicle in three and five years based on estimated mileage and usage, then there are definitives. Definitives can be quantified, math can be done, and the answer can be a known. And if you're living your life with your finances on what you think, you are burning money, and you are treating money poorly, and money goes where it's treated well, which means when money's treated poorly, it leaves, and you hate money, and you don't deserve money, and the money disrespects you because you disrespect the money, and that's why you're broke. I'm not really getting on the collar It's an in general way of making this decision. I hope that helps. I really hope it makes you think in the right way. Thinking is a good thing, but when you think to the point that you're actually doing it optimally, you can get to a point and go, this is a situation where I can know the answer. So you do the work to know the answer. Or you go, this is a situation where I've gathered all the information I can, now I have to make a judgment call. Life is about a mixture of those two. Sometimes it's a judgment call. Sometimes it's factoring a no. When you can know, no. It's worth a little bit of extra effort. It will make you a millionaire in your retirement instead of living below the poverty level on a fixed income uh, and, and whining about the fact that milk went up two cents. It's that serious. And off the soapbox, and let's go on and uh, remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support our show uh by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you can see all the reviews that I've ever done on Amazon um and you can do your shopping from there and no matter what you buy if you shop from there, you help support the survival podcast and the work that we do. I do do, you know, most days Monday through Friday I review a product. Sometimes it's a new product, sometimes one I've done before. Today I'm bringing back one. It's only a few months since I brought this product around. But I thought this was a good product to bring around for Christmas and for some other reasons. This is the Anchor Astro E7 portable charger. This thing has huge capacity. It's a little bit bigger in footprint than, let's say, an iPhone. Uh, a little longer, a little thicker, about the same width. But it will charge an iPhone ten times if it is fully charged itself. Um, it has the most capacity of anything like it that I trust on the market today. Um, Stephen Harris actually has taken exception to this one, saying it's a good product, but I would never buy a product unless it tells me that there's 13% you know, versus there's one bar of power left in it. 
I find that to be like you're, at, you're, you're getting information that doesn't really matter. What are you going to do, not use it? What are you going to not use it when you need the power? If we move the power from the device to the cell phone, do we not still have the power now it's just in the cell phone? Is the cell phone having the power or not? But it, I, just, it, I, like sometimes I think some people can think too much, and, and engineers sometimes do that. This thing is awesome. It always works, and if you ever get one that sucks... You know, oh, like I said, I, re I, I recommend the Carry because it's the only product like it on the market in spite of their customer service. I recommend this product because there are other products almost as good, close to as good, probably just as good, but not with Anchor behind them. Not a company that I know. Let's say you get one that's DOA out of the box and you contact Anchor. The other to say, we are so sorry. Here's another one. That's, that's who I want to recommend. Now, the re so one reason I brought this around, first of all, It is the best product there is, Infinity, for the price to value to quality of company that I have found. I own multiples of these. I won't buy anything else. If I was going to buy something else, what would I buy? I would buy, let's say you, Jack, like you don't want to spend $60, bucks, $65, bucks, whatever it is, to buy one of these. Um, your budget's lower. Um, well, I would buy the smaller Anchor. That, that's what I would buy. There is a smaller version Uh, that you can buy, and I would buy, you know, you can buy one for 40 bucks. that at two-thirds the price, um, you get two-thirds the storage capacity. So I would buy that before I would buy some other company's products. So there's a link to the smaller version thereof, and any of the Anchor products are just solid. You can just look for this much money, I'm getting this much capacity. But the thing that really made me bring it back around today is I have recommended... Um, The Anchor Vehicle Charger, little 12-volt, plugs into the cigarette lighter-type port uh, in your vehicle for a long time to pair with this and for charging your phones and everything else. Again, it costs a little more money, but it's a lot better. And so lifetime cost is what I always look at, just like we talked about in leasing a vehicle versus buying it. What is the total cost to me in time over my lifetime? Uh, it's fantastic. It's fast. It gives 24 watts of power versus the 10 to 15 that the ones that you see for you know five to 10, 15 dollars uh, the little basket at checkout give you. Some of them less than that. They generally fall apart and stop. Where this is very well made, but they've come out with a new charger, not for your vehicle though. This is one to plug in the walls in your house. It is a 30 watt charger. It will fill the the Anchor E7, which is almost 30. It's like 26,000. 800 milliamps, almost 27,000 milliamps of power. It will fill that in four and a half hours if it's dead empty. Four and a half hours, fully charged. It will charge an iPhone 10 times. So it's like taking, like being able to charge 10 dead iPhones with one charger, one after the other, and charge all 10 of them fully in four and a half hours. I think you can see the value there. So I think any of these products make really great Christmas gifts. They are all still shipping fast enough. You'll have them by Christmas because Amazon, two-day shipping, all that. You get to around this time of year, a lot of stuff that says probably you're getting this after Christmas. Inventory's fall. So these are still available. You can still get them in time for Christmas. And this is the way I look at this as a Christmas gift. Yeah, it's not the most sexy gift in the world. But have you ever been somewhere and looked at your cell phone and it had like 7% battery and you didn't have any place to plug it in, and if you could have reached into a bag and charged that phone, how, how much would that have meant to you? That's the gift you're giving. Or have you ever been somewhere where you really needed your phone? Or can you ever see a situation where somebody you love might really need their phone, 
and be running low on battery. That's the gift you're giving. So I think this is a great way to spread spread preparedness, and it's not a scary prepper gift. I think it makes a good gift. I think the new charger is awesome. Um, I have not actually used one yet, but I just trust Anchor, and I've ordered one for myself. And once I get it and use it, I'll make a little video, and I'll put that up as a standalone product. But you can check my review, and it covers all this stuff. And, again, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Brings us to our song of the day. So remember, this week I'm doing Christmas music. That's not typical Christmas music. It can be overtly Christmas, like we did Christmas in the Caribbean yesterday. We did Christmas in Dixie the day before that. So, yeah, I mean, it can be bluntly Christmas, or it can be subtly Christmas. And But it just it's not Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, what have you. It's a song that either wasn't really Christmas and became Christmas, like, you know... Uh, we, 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 we did on Monday, we did the, the one tripping off all the uh, social justice warriors now. Baby, it's cold outside. That was never a Christmas song. Then we did two Christmas songs that you don't, you don't hear carolers. They're not in all the top 40 rotations. And I wanted to, uh, again, give a shout out to John Adam, who, who generally does all of the music selection for me. It was his selection for tomorrow that I won't tell you what it is yet. It's one of those types of songs. They made me, what about a week of this? And I was like, can I find something that even I didn't think of as a Christmas song? Or maybe I just didn't remember. That doesn't have any Christmas sound to it, but it really is legitimately a Christmas song. And I came across a song for you that I'm going to play for you today. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way by Jim Croce. First of all, I love me some Jim Croce, man. Jim is a guy that if he hadn't died way too young, I just wonder what more music And what more brilliance could have come out of the guy? He was just fantastic and unique and different than, you know, not, not you know, cookie cutter like most musicians seem to be, uh, even through the 70s and 80s. Um, and then this song, I think it has a lot of meaning for Christmas, if, if you'll allow it. The, the premise of the song is he's had a relationship in it, and it is the holidays. And the holidays have him thinking about the relationship and how it ended. And it really shouldn't have. And really... They can make it right. And he's coming, he's going to come see her and see if they can put it back and see if they can make something out of it. And it's, it's a Christmas song. It's all about Christmas and Christmas time is what's doing this, even though it's not overtly Christmas. But what it makes me think of is the fact that this is a time of year for a lot of people where they try to bury a hatchet or resurrect a relationship. And I think that's great. And I think it is a good time of year to do that. And I think it's a time of year where maybe people are more open to it. But I'll also say, for instance, with this song, there's a risk associated with it. This song is told from one side of the story. We don't know how long the breakup has been. We don't know what caused the breakup. Did he leave her? Did she leave him? We don't know. It's not in the story. Does she have a new boyfriend? Was this a year-long separation or a week-long separation? We don't know. In any of those scenarios, though, I'm stopping by and we can make this work may be met with, I don't want to. And that's the risk we run in relationships as a whole, because they can always end and hurt us. Or if they've been damaged and we try to put them back together, that can blow up in our face. But this is what I would say. If you believe the relationship is worth trying to heal, whether it's romantic or just a familial relationship or a friendship relationship. It's worth reaching out the olive branch. This time of year, 
or any time of year. And what I've always said to people who have been in situations where the other party really is the one that did the wrong, if you reach out and you're ignored or admonished or whatever, then you have the knowledge of doing the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the result. And it's probably worth the risk to have that. It will make living your life a lot easier long term. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Snowy nights and Christmas lights I see window Make me wish that we could be Together again And the windy winter avenues Just don't seem the same And the Christmas carols sound like blues But the choir is not to blame But it doesn't have to be that way What we had should never have ended I'll be dropping by today We could easily get it together tonight It's only right Crowded stores, the corner Santa Claus Tinseled afternoons And the sidewalk bands play their songs Slightly out of tune On the windy winter avenue There walks a lonely man And if I told you who he is Well, I think you'd understand But it doesn't have to be that way What we had should never have ended I'll be dropping by today Cause we could easily get it together tonight It's only right No, it doesn't have to be that way What we had should never have ended I'll be dropping by today Cause we could easily get it together tonight It's only right